This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Well, who are you introducing? Well, I am actually introducing George Ivanoff. Now, George has been in before, but George writes children's books and it's an art form in and of itself. And George has written well over a hundred books for kids and teens. And he's back with us again today to talk about his latest book, Monster Island. So, George, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be here. But, you know, congratulations on the um, prolific number of books, really. There'd be a lot of authors pleased to be able to get 100 (laughs) books out. Don't don't get too excited by that number (laughs) because I write a lot for the education market, so that's things like school readers. And, you know, school readers can be really, really short and they kind of boost. But they're really, really important if you, you know, want to emphasise the uh, need for reading in schools, etc. But, I mean, you'd be well aware then of the hallmarks that make for a successful children's book. And we can identify them in Monster Island. And the first place I want to start with are our main characters, Bernie and Ivy, because they break boundaries, don't they? Um, well, yes, I suppose they do. They, well, um, Bernie hides away. Yes. Uh, well, see, the thing with, with this book is... Um, is that there are a lot of actually there are actually a lot of adult characters um, in in this novel for a, for a children's book, so there are only really two child characters. So they're kind of uh, child characters in an adult world. So in I you know you've, they're there to break the boundaries. They're there to do things they're not allowed to do. So Bernie is the son of actually a scientist, and we'll get onto that in a minute. But he is following his mum. He's hidden away and he seems to be hiding away a lot. <laughs> yeah, and, he does do a lot of hiding, doesn't he? And Ivy, a very independent young lady. Mm-hmm. So how important is it to have those sorts of essential attributes in a children's book? I, look, I think that the main thing is to give um, the readers someone to identify with, someone that they not necessarily see themselves in but see who they want to be in in those characters so uh, there are a lot of kids who maybe are not all that independent but would like to be independent so a a character like ivy then is very appealing because she is so independent but they're both vulnerable still but they are able to go beyond Mm -hmm. so i think that's important in a children's book the story i think it's important in any book to have a character that develops and grows and, and, and changes by the by the yeah. end of the book. So the story itself, if I can say it this way, is delightful nonsense. <laughs> Secreta Insula or a secret island, which is where we get to Monster Island. And there's something about the location. Very Australian and I wasn't aware the Bass Strait Triangle. Yes, the Bass Strait Triangle is a thing. Um I I did not know this until recently, um, and it came out of my previous book. So I had a non-fiction book called um, The Supernatural Survival Guide, which kind of looked at all the, you know, weird, mysterious stuff in the world and kind of took a scientific approach to it all and asked, you know, how much of this is true and how much of it is, you know, a load of rubbish. Um, and when researching the section on mysterious disappearances, of course, I went and researched the Bermuda Triangle and I discovered that there are other mysterious triangular bits of water around the world where ships and planes supposedly go missing. 
So you've got the the Dragon's Triangle near Japan, and and then I discovered that there was the Bass Strait Triangle, and I just that was just like too wonderful to pass up. I just had to to take that into a fictional context. Well, you know, it it makes it our own, so to speak. We are Australia is also part of this supernatural world, mm. and you name a number of ships that have been lost. Oh, yeah, and, and, and all those um, ships and planes that are mentioned in the book are actual occurrences. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the most famous case is the case of the, the pilot, Frederick Valentich, who, in 1978, I think, was flying a, a light plane from um, Moravian Airport to King Island, which is in the yeah. Bass Strait Triangle. And he um, radioed in when he was almost to the island to say he was being chased by UFOs. Um, right. And then he lost control of his plane, and then the radio went dead, and then he was never seen, seen again. <laughs> of course, there there were investigations, and you know, well, it, there's a reasonably good explanation for what happened to Frederick. There's and, a reasonably good explanation for everything. Yeah. How we then explain the inhabitants of this island, because you've populated it yeah. with some very interesting creatures. <laughs> <laughs> you do, you know, the obvious, uh, you do mention Jurassic Park, and that's yeah, yeah, a sort of... There are a lot of dinosaurs there. So. That's a sort of starting point, mm. though, because there is a particular dinosaur with an opposable thumb. Yes. So what are you doing here? So, uh, well, it's a case of I, I didn't want to just do Jurassic Park, yeah. you know. Um, I, I take a lot of inspiration from... From pop culture. I'm a bit of a pop culture junkie. Um, so there's all sorts of influences coming in, but it was always a case of, you know, oh, well, I want to do something with the dinosaurs, but I want to do more. So, you know, we'll do something special with the dinosaurs, but I want to do more. So I include cryptids, but then I want to do more. So, you know, I invent my own animals as well. So, but, you know, but it's all it, that building. It's sort of appealing to what we already know. Jurassic Park, the kids be familiar with that. Kids yep. are aware of dinosaurs, but hang on, let's stretch the imagination a bit, an opposable thumb, which is basically the foundation of uh, the development of, of people mm. and, and such like. Um, chupacabra. The Chupacabra, yes. The South American cryptid that is supposedly a large reptilian wolf that walks on its hind legs and with fangs and sucks blood mm, and and sucks blood well the chupacabra actually translates as goat sucker <laughs> because they suck the blood out of goats um theoretically there is actually zero evidence for the <laughs> but there was a report of these creatures there was a report as recently as 1980 yeah yeah there are lots of sightings um look they're pretty sure they know what the chupacabra is and that is um uh wolves who have the mange so they they lose oh, don't, all their don't, fur don't don't destroy this and the, myth. the the skin becomes all scaly and looks kind of reptilian okay. and then imagination takes over from there um we can't go without uh, mentioning the thylacine so you've yes, got the yes, thylacine the in, there. in there as well yeah. uh, now come on george <laughs> yeah, drop a bears name? drop a bears <laughs> this is set in australian waters and if i'm going to have a thylacine I'm, i can't not have a drop bear of course and of course i named him bruce as one does <laughs> yeah. as as one would so it's it's got this sort of fantasy fantastical mm. element that the kids know about can connect with uh, and and you just 
let the imagination wander. However, the most interesting life form, perhaps, is the fungus, the mushrooms. Tell I us. Please tell us. do think so, um, because I, I, I find um, fungus and, and, and mushrooms and, and, my, and the mycelium networks that run underground between the mushrooms absolutely fascinating. I'm, it's I'm, a creature that can solve problems without a brain. Yes, yes, it it is. It's it. They are utterly extraordinary. Um, and this this came about simply because I happened to be reading a, a book about mushrooms when I first um, formulated the idea of of monster island. I mean, I like mushrooms to begin with. I mean, I like eating mushrooms. I think mushrooms are you know e- extremely tasty. But I also like um, I like photographing mushrooms. Um, my family and I have done you know early morning walks out. Um, in in the bush and stuff and actually gone to specific areas specifically so that I could photograph some mushrooms. Really? <laughs> okay. That, that's a, a fact I didn't know about. No, there you go. Short. So I'm, I'm a strange person. So but and my, my strangeness comes out. In but that books. networking of mushrooms mm. and you've got this massive network mm. then on the island that can absorb um Yes, well, I, I take it to quite, you know, one might say ridiculous extents. Um, but, you know, with, with m- mushrooms are just the, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. They are like the flowers on, on a plant. The actual main life form, the mycelium network, is underground. So m- mushrooms, they're, they're always found yeah. in groups and stuff, and they're connected underground by the mycelium network. But also then, you know, single-cell mushroom um, is yeast. Uh, so we need it. Uh, the, the fact that they're symbiotic and work with other things. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah I can, think fungi, it's, it's, fungi it's inc- can attack things as they're well. They're an incredible, yeah. absolutely incredible life form that are, and they're, they're so I- important to our own lives. I mean, um, you know, mushroom eating aside, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a bread baker. I love baking bread and I do sourdough breads, <laughs> you know. There you go. So, so they're, they're, yeah, this yeah. is a life form then that uh, has a particular role on Monster Island. We won't mm. say what because pe- kids are going to get out there and read. But Bernie's mum is on this island. She's been headhunted in some ways because she's a cryptozoologist. Now, yes. can you explain the scientific relevance of... Okay, so cryptozoology is very much a pseudoscience. Um, it is the study of hidden animals, creatures which may or may not exist, <laughs> like the Loch Ness Monster and Yeti and Bigfoot and Chupacabra. Um, Mothman would have to be the, the most bizarre one I've, I've come across. Um, so it is the study of these um, the, these creatures, and it it is a it is very much a, a pseudoscience. There there has been attempts in the past to kind of legitimise the whole study, but it's based on on unsound scientific principles, in that it is based on on the idea of trying to prove that the animals exist, which is not really how science works. Um, you've got to approach things with an open mind and try to find out whether it exists or not, not try to prove that it exists. But it's also how kids think and work and behave in terms to, of to a large extent, yes. letting yeah. the imagination yeah. run wild. Then, basically, uh, finally, the challenge of maintaining momentum. 
in a children's book. And because what we have is um, Bernie and Ivy are almost able to solve something and... And then not, and then something else happens and brings them to another almost climax and then that gets solved or stopped and you move on to the next one. So how do you sustain that? Um, well, it, I think it comes down to the fact that I've got a really short attention span. Um, so I'm just writing with a pattern that suits me as a reader. <laughs> and uh, that allows your imagination to run wild yes. as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you just go with that? Yeah. Oh, Okay. It, it really is as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I will sit down once I've got my first draft of a plan and, and go through it and go, okay, so how's the structure going here? Do I have enough high moments and uh, points of interest and, and so forth? And, and I might, you know, take some out if I'm going overboard or, or put some more in if I uh, haven't got enough. So there, I do apply that to it afterwards, but... But initially, I think it is just that simple fact that I have a short attention span and this is what keeps me interested. Well, if you want to know more about George's attention span or the attention span of Bernie <laughs> and Ivy, the book is Monster Island. It's a puffin release and um, in the bookstores at the moment. So, George, thank you very much for coming in and talking oh, with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show again. Well, if you don't want to write about monsters and mushrooms, how hard is it to write a novel? Putting ideas into words and making those words into imaginary life and then having readers understand, learn or even enjoy your work. Let's ask Pip Finkemeyer because she has written Sad Girl Novel. Welcome, Pip. Thank you. Kimberly Mueller leaves her home in Australia. Where does she go to? Uh, she goes to Berlin, like a lot of other lost young people looking to find themselves. <laughs> well, this must take some confidence. Does Kimberly see herself as self-confident? I think Kimberly, she has confidence in certain areas. Um, she's confident about the way she looks. Um, she's confident about her sort of social skills. But when it comes to writing, she has no confidence which is totally fair enough. She hasn't really earned any because she's never really tried to write. She just has this idea that she wants to write a novel. Um, yeah. So in it, it's in Berlin that she meets an older, successful author, Jan, and he tells her this about writing a novel. He turned to me. Kimberly, writing a novel is so lonely. You are literally building your own world and then you have to go and live in that world alone for years or however long it takes to write it. Imagine another world, another planet, just as big as the one we all share, but you go there alone every day. You're the only person who knows this place exists. And you can try to describe it to people, but there's no way they can really know it because it only exists in your imagination. So you sit there all alone in your imaginary world, hoping that you'll be able to pull it out of the unreal place and into the real place to give it some tangible form so that someone else might know it one day, that someone else might appreciate what you're doing. Well, Kimberly thinks she knows what she wants to write about, but in what genre? You know, what genres did she research? Uh, Kimberly, she so she's someone who I think writers won't like because she tried to sort of reverse engineer a bestseller. She wants to write something that's commercially successful, 
So she wants to combine three genres. She calls it her genre fiction, Tadakan. So it's a romance inside a horror inside a um, woman goes crazy genre. Yeah. <laughs> she meets Leo and he's been very successful. He's written many books. And this is what he tells Kimberly. Well, this is what happened with me, the first book. Well, I wrote the novel, yes, and it was an autobiographical story about trauma, about philosophy, more or less. It took a lot out of me and I sacrificed a lot to get it done. I told myself the sacrifice was okay because it was only a temporary state, that it would be over soon and then it would pay off. I finished the story, I sent it to two publishers, the one I really wanted declined and the one I didn't want so much accepted it. Then the book came out and then the strangest thing happened. Nothing. Nothing happened. My life was exactly the same as before the book was published. There were some sales and a few people wrote to me to say they enjoyed it, but everything was the same as before. Leo, that's what he told her. And then there's the coping with different forms of rejection. Is there really a rejection area on Wikipedia? (laughs) Yeah, there is. So when you start writing short stories and you submit them to literary magazines, most of them do get rejected, which is fair enough. It's just statistics. But you can look up the rejection online to see if it was like a generated, like a a formula rejection or whether they personally wrote to you. So sometimes I say something, a soft, there's like a thing called a soft rejection, which is the hard rejection is like, it's not for us, thank you. And then a soft rejection is this, we can't place this one, but we'd like to hear from you in the future. And then you can, yeah. She's very fortunate to meet Belle in Berlin. How is Belle different to Kim? Um, I think Belle is sort of Kim's opposite. She's kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of friends that I had in Berlin. Um, she speaks three languages fluently. She has her father's German, her mother's Turkish. She had a childhood following her mother around to different restaurants she was opening up over Europe. So she's incredibly independent and hyper competent, I would say, and complete opposite of Kim in that regard. And then, but Kim can really offer her something in the, in just sort of having a little fun sometimes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Kim's job sends her to New York. How, how does she meet Matthew? Um, well, I wanted to do, because I was playing with the idea of like romance in the middle section, I wanted to do this, a meet cute. And I thought a good send up of the meet cute would be, I don't think it's a spoiler to say they meet at the dog park because Matthew's dog peas on Kim's leg and that's how they strike up a conversation and I go to the dog park I'm waiting for this to happen to me but never has <laughs> I don't need a fella yeah your dog <laughs> pee on your boot yeah blank is this anxious dog mm-hmm. and she's an anxious woman and with Matthew they talk about their anxieties but the sex is very good <laughs> he's a literary agent and a wealthy supporter of the arts he asks her about her purpose in life. So what does he want her to do? I think Matthew, he's someone who works with creative people. He kind of comes from money and he's surrounded by people that can, if they want to write a novel, they just try and write a novel. And Kim comes from a different world where, you know, she's more focused on paying the rent and things like that. So he's trying to instill in her this confidence to to be a writer and break down all these little doubts that she has in her mind. And he's quite dealing good at dealing with her neuroticism you can tell in the conversations they have about it that he's an agent so he knows how to talk to writers and get them working so he says 
write a novel in a year. That's what her whole plan is. His sister tells Kim that Matthew supports lost dogs and lost people. Why does she leave him and New York so abruptly? Before she goes off to New York, she's spending a lot of time with Belle, her best friend. And yeah, Belle's having a baby by herself at the same time as Kim's writing this novel. So they have these twin acts of creation that go side by side in the book and get compared a lot. And as soon as Belle tells Kim that baby's coming, she's just out the door because her kind of... Bella's sort of the love of her life in a way. Mm, yeah. yeah. And there's this, this lovely comparison you write about between birthing a baby and birthing a novel. Yeah. And I've never birthed a baby, so that was all on <laughs> um, research, yeah. Through Matthew, she gets invited to the Frankfurt Book Fair. Now we wonder, will this lead to a furthering of their relationship or a creative spark in her novel writing? Well, we won't say what. <laughs> Kimberly also has regular meetings with Debbie. Yes. Now, who's she? Debbie's Kim's therapist. She's probably one of my favourite characters. She's openly based on Debbie Harry from Blondie, but a modern day one. So I just called her Debbie, which was very lazy. But she gives terrible advice, but she's still a great sort of mother figure to Kim when she's so far from home. And, yeah, in Berlin, a lot of my friends were in therapy And it's not all fiction, some of the terrible stuff she says. (laughs) At one stage, Debbie suggests that Kim should try to step outside herself. This leads to Kim meeting Benedict. And uh, how does she step outside herself? Um, She takes a lot of drugs. That's how she decides to, yeah, her way to sort of exit her reality and enter another one. And in Berlin, I think no book. Berlin book would be complete without that sort of little segue. So, yeah, that's some of Debbie's great advice is for her patients to just take some drugs and it might make them feel better. (laughs) Well, you mentioned Berlin and you've got a lovely bit here about the Berlin boys. Maybe we could hear that. Yeah, sure. Berlin boys were stuck in a perpetual state of adolescence and usually weren't able to wean themselves off never-emptying titties of male uselessness. Clubs, drugs, video games, hanging out with girls but not labelling things while wearing tracksuit pants that were always labelled with three Adidas stripes down the side. The good ones, the boys we met that knew how to be boyfriends, usually already were. Some of those boyfriends were in open relationships and so we were afforded glimpses of love from those who weren't afraid to talk about their emotions because there was no threat of any real commitment on account of their real girlfriends who were usually German and therefore considered a more sensible choice. Mm. So there's wild boys, wild girls, <laughs> and uh, how she comes back to her novel is really about how she comes back to understanding herself. And she writes about the main character syndrome. Mm. Explain that. Main character syndrome is a thing, is like a meme on the internet, basically, when people are kind of narcissistic and self-obsessed, where you believe yourself to be the main character. But Kim suffers from it, but asks herself, like, is it still main character syndrome when you literally are the main character? So, but yeah, I think Kim is a person who's very unaware of her, so self-aware in some elements, but then sometimes she has massive blind spots about herself and she does suffer from some self-centeredness. Okay. Oh, yeah. Self, self, self-centeredness. <laughs> self, 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 yeah. There's a quote, my stories were all contemporary, mostly about sad women who were miserable for no obvious reason. The lack of a good reason to be sad often made them even more sad. <laughs> now, and she sort of th- thinks, who would the, be the readers of this novel? 
international sad girls, privileged white women with nothing to say. Now, I don't know about that, but let's have one last look at Belle. Well, Belle's, as you say, very functional. And she explains and does the numbers on successful writers. Okay. Belle and I had crunched the numbers, looked at the statistical likelihood of me becoming a successful writer. Belle had even made me an infographic, the numbers of wannabe writers versus actual ones, then the numbers of those actual writers who made a living from it. I'm not great at maths, but I had to admit the prognosis was extremely not good. It was a small little percentage of humans I was trying to join. Pip Finkemeyer, you've joined them now. <laughs> I don't know how much of you is in the character of Kim, but, uh, you know, well done. It's, it's the book's out there. Yeah, thank you. I think Kim would be very proud of you. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm proud of Kim. <laughs> well, is the purpose of life making the right choices when it comes to friends, family, relationships, and especially your career? What if that career involves wanting to be an author? Pip Finkemeyer has the character trying to work it all out in Sad Girl Novel. Now, Pip, before we came in here, you told me that you've been picked up by a literary agent in America. Yeah, that's true. So I submitted the opening of this novel to the Rochelle Emerging Writers Prize in 2020. It was long-listed, and based off that, uh, agent reached out to me. She was scouting for new uh, writers. New Australian writers? Yeah, which is unusual. Yeah. And you said you thought she was a scam. Yeah. <laughs> I got an email saying, hello, I am an American literary agent. And, and I was like, okay, this is not real. But it turns out we actually, a mutual friend, she's also their agent. So I knew she was real. She turned out to be very good. And she's now my agent for this one and, and the next. So, oh, yeah. Well done. And the Rochelle Prize. Mm. Imagine Rochelle Prize. So you that how much how many words did you have to submit? I think it's up to the first three chapters, maybe about twenty thousand words, which was all I had at the time. And then yeah, I submitted to that when I was still living in Berlin. The pandemic had started and then on my leaving the day I had my like going away party and stuff, I got the emails to say that I was long listed, which was good. Because it did need, you know, when you're at the beginning of your career, you haven't written anything, a little bit of validation goes a long way. So that was like the steam I needed to finish the novel. <laughs> so you didn't take a year off to finish the no novel in Berlin. You came home. <laughs> yeah, I had to work, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I've been chatting with Pip Finkemeyer about her book, Sad Girl Novel. And I was talking with George Ivanoff about his novel, Monster Island, so, and the challenges of being a writer and just producing materials as well. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.